the United States of America is called a Christian nation. Christian nation. Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith, faith, faith. politics, politics, history, history, and current events. Current events. And now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily. I'm Derek Stone with a moment on sports, part one. The Big Ten Conference champion Michigan Wolverines football team held their awards banquet this past Sunday. Right guard Zach Zinter, linebacker Michael Barrett, running back Blake Corum, wide receiver Samaj Morgan, and defensive back Caden Kolasar were named the best offensive lineman, best linebacker, offensive player of the year, rookie of the year, and special teams player of the year, respectively. Mason Graham and Kenneth Grant shared the title of best defensive lineman. Chris Jenkins, Mike Sainrastill, and Junior Colson shared the defensive player of the year honor, and quarterback J.J. McCarthy received the most prestigious accolade, the Bo Beckler Most Valuable Player Award. In curling news, a men's team captained by Don Knapp won the Utica Curling Club Championship in New York this past Sunday. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. And good afternoon, and Merry Christmas. Yes, I said it. Merry Christmas to, to my uh, Jewish friends out there. If you want to wish me a happy Hanukkah, I will appreciate it, and I will take it with the, the love and, and intent that you gave it. Uh, to my atheist friends out there, if you want to say happy Festivus for the rest of us, you can do that. To my Muslim friends out there, I'm not Muslim. I'm going to eat today. All right? So, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Now, who else can I offend? No. Um, today, we're doing our annual Christmas show. We do it once a year because Christmas only comes across once a year. And like most families, we have a tradition at uh, Moment of Clarity, and that is having Ed Hoffman join us as a co-host to talk about things as Christmas. And so, how you doing, Ed? Doing very well. Thank you, Rick. Hello, everybody, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'm delighted to be back. Thanks, Rick. Oh, Thank you, Ed. It's always our pleasure. And my other co-host is Ed Bondarenka from Your American Heritage. It's Christmas time. I'm going to say it right. Oh, That's all I can you say. shocked me. Yeah. 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 A, you know, two Eds are better than one. I'm yeah, I'm a, rose, I'm a rose stuck between two Eds. Yeah. Got it? <laughs> no better place. <laughs> My brother. <laughs> All right, enough high-fiving. Enough of that. <laughs> enough of that. Um, so one of the things, I, I know in your show, Ed, you're going to be talking a lot more about the movie. And I don't want to talk much about this movie in particular as much as I want to talk about the actress involved with it. Um, her name is, uh, the actress's name is Virginia Patton. And in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, I think her her part in that movie sets the tone for the rest of the movie it locks the movie story in um if we can have that sound clip just of that piece 
Old Professor Nobody ever changes oh, here, oh, you know that. I'm glad to see you. Say, where's Mother? She's home cooking the fatted calf. Come on, let's go. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait a minute. George, Uncle Billy, I want you to meet Ruth. Hello. Hello. Ruth Dakin. Ruth Dakin Bailey, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, I wired you. I had a surprise. Here she is. Meet the wife. What do you know? Wife. <laughs> How do you do? Congratulations. How do you do? What am I doing? Congratulations! How are you Why don't you tell So then she goes on in that clip to say, well, you know, he had, why did you marry him? And, and well, my dad fell in love with him and offered him a job. In which, of course, he takes the job locking George Bailey at home, taking care of the financial business. So Hey, may I? Yes. That scene, that whole scene you just played visually is just so stunning. I'm amazed at it every time I watch it because virtually the whole time they're they're watching George Jimmy Stewart's face yep. and his reaction and the you see the gears churning in his head, you see his heart, you see everything and then you see how he handles it. Amazing. Yep. And um that that scene involving Virginia Patton. You know, if Virginia Patton, she was a remarkable, remarkable actress. She was involved with much more than this movie. Everyone thinks of this movie. And I'll tell you, when I first saw, the first time I fell in love with this movie, that scene, I hated her. <laughs> she stopped George from being able to follow his dreams. And man, but uh, that, that, that scene was so important to the direction of the movie. And... Um, you know, other than the fact she was absolutely by, she earned her own name as an actress. She was in so many uh, different movies, but she was also the niece of uh, General George Patton, mm -hmm. and uh, she she never tried to use that connection for her own good. She was just a remarkable actress, and Ed Hoffman's had opportunity to interview her a couple of times. Right. Correct? Yeah. Well, I I interviewed her once here. Mm -hmm. It was over ten years ago um, with her husband Cruz Moss. Uh, who uh, many people know here in the area as a businessman, also automotive uh, chief executive. Um, and they married actually not, and you can correct me on this, I think it was not long after It's a Wonderful Life. They had a very long, wonderful marriage. Uh, and um, Ginny, as she was known to you know, people here in Ann Arbor, uh, where she lived for decades, mm -hmm. um, you know, she left the business. Uh, not long afterwards. I think, I think in she the, had one movie after that. Yeah, yeah, some costume drama or something. Yeah. Uh, the title escapes me right now. But it was one of those things where she was extremely happy and uh, made a family here in Ann Arbor. And, and the connection for me was um, I had a, a friend who is a, a CPA uh, here in the area who asked me if, if I would uh, appraise and, and handle some antiques for some people that he knew. Mm -hmm. and, and that was... Ginny and Cruz. And I looked at some of the art that they had um, and beautiful pottery and everything like that and made some recommendations as to what they could do with it and, and, and actually made the arrangements for them to be able to, to sell them. Uh, and again, this was like 10, 12 years ago. And, you know, I got to know her a little bit, her, her wonderful conversationalist, both of them were. And having them both here in the studio was something I will I will never forget. And I, I, I will say this. Um, 
she wanted to be based here in Ann Arbor. She wanted the lifestyle of Ann Arbor, this northern part of the Midwest, not California, not New York. And that said an awful lot about her. Yeah, because she, she went to school both in California and at U of M. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's her time at U of M where she absolutely fell in love with Ann Arbor. Absolutely. And the museum. I mean, right. for a very long time, she was a docent, a volunteer docent at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. And there are a lot of people in your audience, Rick, I'm sure, who remember having a tour conducted by Ginny Moss. But um, If they knew who she was when they did that. They probably, you know, it's funny, when you have a celebrity in your midst, and I I do not mean to sound trite at all with this, but both of you have interviewed celebrities, and so you know what I'm talking about. There is, and I think it goes back to Cary Grant also, who, who would say that, you know, you're an actor. You have to have a great deal of respect for you as an actor and your persona, because you are your own stock in trade. Ginny carried her stock in trade in any situation. When I talked with her here, when I met with her at their beautiful house in Ann Arbor Hills, she was just by nature, every bit a star. And I, and I think that you and in, in the audience too can, can appreciate this. When you've done what you've, you've had to do as a singular creative entity, you carry that in every social situation, and she had that in spades. Let, let me t- tell you something. I do not, because I'm a host of a radio program, mm-hmm and an appraiser, and, you know, I help people evaluate what they have before other people come in and make so offers. You, you're a things. celebrity, so you do the same no, thing. No, I'm not. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I have the wonderfully privileged position like you have of being a kind of Nick Carraway character, mm-hmm. you know, like Gatsby and all that. Mm-hmm. You have the entree. You're able to be there and to understand, and, you're, and our job is to elicit information. For me, that is a wonderfully privileged position not the celebrity not anything like that i'm sorry it's no, I, I just wanted to say one thing i normally do not go to um what are called you know home auctions house sales right. and all that. number one i was in that the auction business and all that but because of my show and because of what i do i do not like to go to these house sales in ann arbor they're incredibly popular because a lot of people have very very nice things right and so yeah. there's a big lineup out <laughs> ann there ann arbor when they saw after cruz died in August, what was about four years ago now or something like that, 19, August of 19. The house was, was emptied and everything like that in, in, um, by December. There was a house sale. That was one of the very few that I have attended. And it was a big clamoring affair. I mean, it was it, it, for Antelope Antiques here in town, it was one of their biggest sales. And, uh, you know, just knowing those people, I knew how happy they were from that. And they did a superb job in that home sale. I picked up some things there that you want to talk about what what, what makes you feel closest mm-hmm. to someone you know, even peripherally, right. like I know, knew her. Her books, her books from when she was an actress learning Spanish or the books on literature that she, she had to be an actress continuing going to school, not U of M books, but earlier from the right. 40s. I was very happy to get those. And I see her penmanship, her name, inside on the flyleaf of those books. Or, because she was married, Virginia Patton Moss right. as the book plate. More than autographed pictures, more than any, anything glitzy at all. 
to be able to have something that was that intimate and close to her because she was always into self-improvement was something that I like. And I'm very, very happy that I attended that event and was able to get those. Well, you, you tend to share the same uh, love for books as, as I do. And to get a book that was owned by someone who you admire allows you okay. to get, for a moment as you read that book, it allows you to get into that person's mind for just that moment right. as they're going through it. And, and it, it, it does become very intimate and, and much more special than a photograph. The photograph oh. was taken. You see, okay, yes. the person's standing there. But when you're reading that book, it just allows you to really just get into that person's mind just for that moment. And right. so, Especially with their notes and highlighting like you were doing. I, mean, yeah, that's, I that's, didn't even mention that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. She has everything highlighted, like phrases and, and all that. And there's some, mm-hmm. some, some literature and things too. But I don't know. I mean, what can you think of that brings you closer to someone you didn't know well, let's say, but admire very much? The only thing I can think of would be the First, letter, letters writing. they wrote to yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> right? Or, or if they were artistic, their drawings. Mm-hmm. What could be more intimate than having a book, not about themselves, not even a book that they wrote, right? But something that they collected and was there in, in their interior, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, uh, just to one of my fondest memories, Ed, was when I was able to find a book that you so much wanted that you grew up with because it was so much part of your life. And when I was able to find that book, I mean, that, that was such an impression. And I went through that book, and I found out why you fell in love with this book, but I also learned a lot about you, why you liked that book. And so, yeah. I have to, I have to tell the audience, though, just okay. very briefly, because I'm talking too much, but I want mm. them to know about the generosity of Rick Dietering. Um, I explained to him, I explained to him a situation in my family. My, my uh, aunt and uncle both had, had died in a few years of each, of each other. And they were getting ready to empty the apartment out in New York City and stuff. And they had some very, very nice nice books that had come from a library that my grandparents had actually acquired from good friends of theirs. It was actually sort of like this Gilded Age situation, this library that carried over to them. Well, that couple, who were my grandparents' good friends, were getting a divorce. And they had cleared out this magnificent house, which is still standing, actually, I think on 64th Street, New York. They said, you know, to my grandfather, you know, Fran, just, you know, you and Ethel, anything that's left in the house, would you just just take it if you want it? I didn't know until maybe about 10 years ago or so where these, where that library had come from. Well, it was kind of like divided up between, you know, mainly my mother, but then her two siblings, right? So this set of books on the life of Michelangelo uh, that was published around 1906 um, by John Addington Simmons, who at the time was this great art historian and, and wrote these biographies. Benvenuto Cellini was another great one to read. But it was a book that, you know, if there's something that I would like to remember my aunt and uncle by, it would be to have that, that set, right? And it's just a, you know, a two-volume set. And the thing is, it got all jumbled up, and God knows where it went, with my cousins and all that. I had just mentioned this in conversation to Rick. The next thing I know, a few weeks later, there's this box waiting for me at Wham, heavy, and it says, open it. I think you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna like this. And I, already, I'm very thankful. I said, what, Rick, what is it? I open it up, and it's a 1906 edition of The Life of Michelangelo, and I think even better condition than the one at my aunt and uncle's house. 
What a thoughtful gift. That's something that doesn't happen very often. And in other words, I've got it. It's the same book, the same year, and everything that makes me think of that. Mm -hmm. The fact that you did it makes it even better than if I'd gotten the family edition. Well, the the joy, that's the thing. You know, Christmas time and just giving of gifts, it's not about getting back a reciprocity. Oh, it's you about got a Jackie thank you oh, on air profusely. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you no, look at your head how big it is it right is. now. I, I'm, headphones I'm, are going to burst. But, uh, you know, that, that gifts are about the joy it brings other people. And uh, and I appreciate the fact that uh, you, you enjoyed it so much. But back to uh, Virginia Patton. Um, Who? Oh, I'm sorry. We were talking about her. That's right. Yeah, Virginia Patton. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we went there because, well, some of her books ended yeah. up in Ned's possession, position, p- possession. That too. Sorry. Yeah, I'll get it out. Uh, Custodianship. But, yeah. That's we don't, we don't really, we, we don't own anything in this life except debt, right? Stewardship, yeah. That's yeah. right. You're uh, a custodian. Anything good. You're just about to pass it along to someone else. But Virginia was the last adult cast member uh, of It's a Wonderful Life. And she just passed away, unfortunately, um, August of last year. And uh, that that actually, <clears throat> surprising enough, that actually impacted me. Because I remember the very first time I saw her, I didn't like her. Because well, <laughs> she stopped George from getting her dream. And I thought more and more as I watched that. Is and she, she smiled so wonderfully she, she while smiled, she did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I realized, no, this is a woman who's very much in love with her husband. And that's why she married him and everything else. And love happens. And that's great. And sometimes when love happens, it, does, it, it affects everyone around you in different ways. And, um, and, I, and I kind of grew, grew to like that. Because without that scene, the movie doesn't continue on. It it ends right there. Yeah, you know George um, gets on the train and <laughs> and, and takes off, <laughs> and, and then we don't have the rest of the story. So I, I I learned to actually from the first impression of absolutely looking at her as the villain of the, I mean I looked at her more as a villain of that than I did Potter, <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, for for that moment, just because I felt sorry. And part of it was my own story. Is I I'd seen some of my own dreams not go the way I planned, but. In the end, they worked out really well. That's well. that whole movie right there. Yeah. Um, By the way, did she ever appear at Michigan Theater during a showing of It's a Wonderful Life? I think, yeah, I think that I think she did. I think Russ Collins, the um, executive director there, I think uh, had her on at some point later. If you go into the lobby of the Michigan Theater now, there's a beautiful plaque on the one far wall hmm. uh, commemorating her. And so they, they had a very nice commemoration of her there, which was, which was great. I, the last time that I saw her, she had, um, when she sold the house, finally, and that was empty, she, she moved over to a very, very nice retirement community here in Ann Arbor. And I um, was, uh, with the art director there, I, I, I gave these sort of like little mini symposia about art history, taken from the art in the collection of this retirement community, which people had donated to them. So they had this fabulous collection of art. And we would take, and it was actually um, the, the idea of, um, of, uh, uh, of somebody else um, to think of a title, uh, Five Easy Pieces, like, like the movie. Five Easy Pieces of Art from the collection of the, this, this community. And we would concentrate on the different artists, some of whom were Ann Arbor artists, others far afield. Um, but I saw her in the hallway there, uh, and she was being helped by someone. 
And I said hello to her again and all that. But I can tell you, coming down the hall, much older in life, maybe about a year before she died, she was every bit the star with that incredible smile, mm-hmm. that, that stunningly beautiful smile yep. from the film. She still had it. The eyes, you know, she was always on in, as a star, is yeah. always on. But it was, there was so much warmth and generosity there. It was, I'll never forget Was that. she on or was that just her? That's a good, uh, that's a good question. I'm not so sure I can I mean, answer I'm that. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be critical, but the way you make it sound is like she was play acting a role the rest of her life. And No, I don't mean know, it that way. No, no, I don't mean it that way. I, I, I mean it that when you are an actor, for instance, mm-hmm. particularly, even more than a musician or something like that, every time you are seen as a first impression that you're, tra- so it becomes second nature. I believe, to always appear at your best, to always look your best, and she did. Uh, I've talked to people in my neighborhood, right, in Ann Arbor Hills, you know, and they grew up, and they would play at her house. There's still some people who grew up as kids in my neighborhood, and that's that's kind of fading out, but they're still there. Lovely people. And they remember playing there, and they said, oh my God, we knew that she was a star, and you could always tell Mm -hmm. when you were over her house, whether you're having cookies and milk or whatever it was. She was the star from It's a Wonderful Life. But no, I think that there was an inner warmth and an incredible confidence. Mm -hmm. She was a force of nature. She she reminds me a little bit of Tippi Hedren in a way. A real force of nature, incredible opinions, the ability to conceive of an idea and to be able to follow it through, whether it's an acting or anything else she did, raising her family. And I, I feel very privileged that I knew her very peripherally. But- there's, there's a, just something that, uh, just to be able to share that with you. If I can get this out before the music starts, uh, there's a thing where you, you, not, you never want to meet your heroes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was able to meet Burl Ives in real life. Not the man you see in the movies, unless you want to go with the time he played a tyrant. He was, he was terrible. He was awful, right? Oh, yeah. um, he, he, he was not a kind man, okay? Um, and, and his... his uh, cousin didn't like him at all (laughs) and that's how i ended up meeting him but then there's those actors that are exactly what you see who you see when when you meet them excuse me you said his cousin didn't like him that's how you ended up meeting him yeah he was over at the house he was over at his house because i knew the cousin and i thought maybe the cousin sicked him on you or something no 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 the cousin and i were friends (laughs) and he ended up uh going burl ended up going over to his house and i said i always want to meet him he says no you don't no, you don't. I said, no, I, I do. I, I loved him in, in Rudolph. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and went over there and I was so disappointed. But then I meet other, other people I've met that they were every bit who you see on stage or in the movies. Is, that is, they take roles that their personality best speaks to. And I think that's the case with, with in the case of that movie with mm-hmm. Virginia, is uh, that smile and everything else. That's who she was, and that's why she could pull it off so so f- beautifully is because that is her. It w- didn't require the forced smile. I mean, she knew how to smile. She knew how to sparkle. She knew how to be a star. It looked genuine in that railroad car scene, you know, when she gets off mm-hmm. the train. It just it just comes across. Either she's a remarkable actress and she could pull that off, or it just was her. That's what I was getting at. Was, right. that, was that just her? Mm-hmm. I think it was. I think oh, yeah. it was. I would, so, just, I would just add to what you just said very beautifully, is that we're in that season where I think we, we can all be stars. Mm-hmm. 
You know, th- th- this is this is the time of the year when being the individuals we are really makes a difference when we're in a store, mm-hmm. we're meeting strangers, we're helping somebody, you know, jumpstart a car, whatever it is, but or just simply saying happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Uh, I think it's a reminder that we're all we're all actors, but putting over our true selves, and this yeah. is that time of the year when maybe we feel freer to be able to do that. So if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is, be a be a Virginia Patton. Don't be a Burl Ives. <laughs> well, you sum that <laughs> up beautifully <laughs> for a guy who looks like Burl Ives. Yeah, I'm gonna smack you. I'm gonna smack <laughs> you hard. Now I sound like him. Hey, folks. Uh, We'll be back after these messages talking about a great piece of Christmas music. Pastor Richard Dietering on Wham. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily. I'm Derek Stone with another moment on sports. Former Detroit Pistons public address announcer Ken Calvert passed away at the age of 72 this past Wednesday. Here's an audio sample of his greatest work during his tenure, which began in 1985 and concluded in 2001. Senator in his tenth season from Notre Dame, number 40, Bill Andy. A guard in his fifth season from McNeese State, number four, Joe Dumars. A guard in his ninth season from Indiana, your captain, number 11, Isaiah. Now, here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. beautiful voice you just heard was singing from Messiah or from Handel's Messiah. Um, it's from one of the arias that is within the Messiah and they have a number of different soloists in that in that piece of work and that that piece there that aria is twice as long as any other aria within the whole piece and it was written and I think that was for a purpose. Um, when Handel wrote that in London, his fame was dwindling a little bit. He um, he wasn't able to fill the halls like he had once done in London, but he was still considered a superstar in Dublin, in Ireland. And uh, so he, he wrote this Messiah, and he was looking for the right soloist to do this part of the, this contralto piece. 
And um, so he finds this singer who really isn't that musically trained. She's had some basic musical training, but she couldn't read music. She, she Handel actually had to teach her to sing the song um, that you just heard being sung. She, she sounded real good there. Yeah, well, this is going back in the 1700s. Um, <laughs> he had to teach her note by note how to sing it. But everyone loved this. She was also an actress. She did a lot of very uh, uh, dark roles. And um, her, her name was Susanna Sieber. Some people want to say Kyber. And some people would be wrong. Um, <laughs> Susanna Sieber. And um, so when, when Handel's going to bring it and he's going to perform in Dublin, uh, the notice goes out. Handel's going to do this. And, and the notice says, Woman, please do not wear hoop skirts. And men, leave your swords at home. We need to make more room for more people. And they were right. They, they would not have had room otherwise. That place was packed. Not just because of Handel's fame. But Susanna Sieber, she was also a famous actress of the time. She was the top female actress of the time with, within London and, and um, Ireland, except she was blacklisted from the stage in London because she had just gone through a very, very terrible divorce. She was married to a um, Theophilus Sieber, who was very abusive, physically and mentally. Um, when she refused to take a role, he, he went and took all of her clothes took all of her clothes from her, took all the money she'd made while on stage and blew it and wouldn't, and he would beat her and he was just terribly abusive. Um, and then he, he sets up and he sort of forces this, this affair between his wife and this very rich man uh, so he can sue him for adultery. And through this all, there was nothing that she could do because of the time. The man was the house. You, you, you did not go against the man of the house, the law, and everything else. So she goes through this very scandalous divorce. She finds, ends up this man that her husband thrust upon, literally thrust upon his wife. They end up falling in love. She divorces him, and uh, he then tries to sue again. He sues this guy twice, once for adultery, and he, he tried to sue for like 10,000 10, pounds, which is a lot of money back then. He ended up getting like the first suit, one farthing, which was nothing, but they had to give him something because... Okay. It was a token. And then when she then divorced him and married the, the, that guy again, he sued again. And this time he got 10 farthings. So <laughs> and that was it. But he was very abusive. So between the, the stardom of Handel and of Susanna Sieber and the scandal going on, which was really big news. She box office draw. It was a box office draw. And the place was jam-packed. And and the part you heard the uh, the singer contralto <laughs> contralto thank you um, couldn't spit it out uh, singing there there's this line where it says he was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and Handel she, wrote that yes he wrote that that I got it from the Bible oh okay but I'm sorry. she got sang it. that he put oh. that in the Messiah oh, okay. okay got it and, and she sings it. And then she sings it again. And then she sings it again. Again, it's a very long aria. And she sings it again. And just then, uh, Reverend Pat Patrick Delaney, he, he was the pastor of uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, knowing of all the scandal going on and everything else. And as she sang it like about the third time, he gets up and he says, Woman, 
for this be all thy sins forgiven thee. It moved him that much. It, you sang it so beautifully and everything else. May all your sins be forgiven you. And, and at that moment, it is said she realized that there is forgiveness. Because, of course, she was considered the, the evil one because of the divorce. Women didn't divorce their husbands. It wasn't proper. And so as bad as Theophilus was, the scandal was on her. And, and, and she got this sense of forgiveness. And through that, she, they say she wept when, when uh, the reverend got up and yelled, yelled that. Your sins are forgiven you. For, for this performance, all your sins are forgiven. And, uh, and to hear that from a, a religious identity, he was the head of St. Patrick's Cathedral, to, to, to get that confirmation. It's almost prophetic. Yeah. Um, and all the grief and everything else she had gone through. They say it brought her to tears, but she finished the peace. And so you, you have there the, the forgiveness in the Messiah. And, and Handel's Messiah was originally written for Easter time. But now, if you, have a, if you have an orchestra hall and you do not do Handel's Messiah at the Christmas season, you might as well just shut your doors, lock it up, and not go back. It's such a mainstay now in American culture. And uh, it's been used in so many different movies. But uh, there, there's this one part of it that didn't involve Susanna. It involved the, uh, the chorus, the, the whole choir. In most of Handel's pieces, it was always the, the soloist that would drive the piece along. But in Handel's Messiah, kind of reversed that. Yes, you had the soloists. They all had their parts. And with the exception of the part he wrote for Su Susanna Sieber, uh, they were all relatively short unlike his normal pieces. In this, he wanted the chorus to drive the piece throughout. And this is the part of Handel's Messiah. We'll play the whole, the whole piece. It's not that long, but everyone should be familiar with this.
absolutely remarkable piece of music. And if you ever have time to sit down and listen to the whole Messiah, I mean, you you go from his birth to his death in that piece of music. Uh, um, Beethoven, who never had a nice thing to say about anyone, he he was he was kind of like the Burl Ives of music <laughs> to come full circle. Never had a nice thing to say about anyone, but upon hearing the Messiah. He said that Handel was the greatest composer, the greatest composer ever. Wow. Because of that. It was just it's a remarkable piece. And um, it, it's, again... It's kind of his comeback, too, wasn't it? It really was, because before that, he could, he could hardly get booked in London anymore mm-hmm. because he wasn't selling the tickets, so to speak. He wasn't filling the hall. I wonder, I wonder if the Ninth Symphony, Rick, was sort of like Beethoven's homage. To handle, do you, do you think? I, I, you're, I think the mus- very, you're the musicologist. You I, I, I think it's very possible that he did because it was right about the time where he made that statement. Where he was, then the ninth mm-hmm. came out not too much long longer after that. So very mm-hmm. well could be, um, and, and the use of of choir uh, mm-hmm. in the ninth is very reminiscent mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. a lot of the parts of of the Messiah. So, so homage or rip off? <laughs> no, no it just, wasn't a ripoff or inspiration. It, it was an inspiration. Definitely an inspiration. Okay. Well, I think for for Handel, obviously the Bible and yeah. and the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. For Beethoven, Shelley's Ode, yeah. right? And, and the thing about Handel, now when he wrote this, like Joy. I said, that that aria he wrote for Susanna Seaver was twice as long as any of the other arias within that whole piece. Um, and, and it was for a contralto, which normally you didn't find a lot of people writing for it because yeah. if, to understand that that singing voice, the contralto voice, is the lowest scale a woman sings at. And everyone loved the sound of the soprano and the mezzo-soprano, but the contralto, not much was written. Handel wrote this for her. They say that the only thing that Handel loved more than food was her voice. And, uh, and he purposely wrote it extra, extra long for that reason. And he did enjoy food a lot. <laughs> he was a very large man. Again, like we're lives. Only nicer. <laughs> Han- Handel was nicer. Um, but, um, yeah, it's the, the, the story behind that, we hear it, and, and the biblical story behind it is wonderful, and it carries well. And it gives us a reason why we celebrate his birth, is that here, here's God. He, he trans transcends his throne. He comes in the form of physical body, but not just in physical body. He comes starting out as an infant, the most vulnerable of all human beings at that point, an infant. And from that moment on, the world was out to kill him. And he goes through all the trials and tribulations of being in this material world, where a lot of the religions back there believe that, no, the, the Spiritual world cannot come over to the material world because the hmm. material world is so bad. But it's through the material world that God brings his son, Jesus. And he does the most human thing possible. At the end, he dies for us. And, and, and the Messiah just sings of that whole, from, like I said, from, from birth to death. And the fact of the struggles that he had seen and everything else. So when, when we remember, I remember as a young man, I shouldn't say young man. As a child, I mean, I was I was still being carried into church by my mom, but I still remember this uh, because she took us the whole family to midnight mass 
and at that time that was like nine kids and that's a lot of kids to be taking i was about probably four years old and um were your parents separated at that point not at that point no and so I, we go to the midnight mass and i'm i'm thinking about santa claus and all this all this neat stuff of christmas and, and jesus being born i'm thinking of jesus in this little manger and and i remember like it was yesterday this thought coming through my mind why are we celebrating his birth as i look up at the crucifix when we're going to do that to him you know because in the catholic church they, they leave jesus on the cross mm -hmm. so i'm looking at my why why are we even celebrating this and, and that, that impacted that night impacted my view quite of Christmas. Quite a lot of insight for a four-year-old. Yeah, it, it, I, I agree. I, I don't know. I say God had to give me that thought because at that point, my concern was, am I going to get what I asked Santa for, right? <laughs> and, and then as they're talking and I hear the priest talking about this glorious birth of Jesus, and, and I'm looking at who... But it wasn't a glorious birth. Well, except for the angels in the sky yeah. and the shepherds, yeah. And the angels singing and yeah. the choir and Magi everything showing up eventually. Okay, but I mean, yeah, you know... Yeah, it was pretty glorious. Yes, he was, he was born in a manger, yeah. a feeding trough, so to speak, yeah, okay, um, but... Uh, placed in a manger. I don't know if he was born in a manger. Right? Right. She, she probably did not actually... Yeah. My push. wife mentioned yeah. that to me the other day. Yeah. Probably not. So, um, yeah. But that story, that, that piece of music just really does move me, and it always has ever since I was a kid, that, that Messiah, especially that, that last piece we just played. Hallelujah! That, mm -hmm. that that just that. I didn't that know there were any arias. I always thought there was just the chorus. <laughs> no, well, it, again, in that one, the chorus. If you actually listen, there is a soloist within that chorus piece, but mm -hmm. it's the it's the art the choir that's pushing it along. So it's a really remarkable piece, and and uh, just the last note on uh, Susanna Sieber was um, she got her start in singing. With Handel, not as a contralto, but as a, as the higher end. <laughs> soprano? soprano, yes. She was a soprano. She had such range that she could go from soprano to contralto. And, and that is remarkable for any singer. Did you say she didn't have musical training? She did not. Every piece she did, for, every piece for Handel, he had to teach her note by note. Man, and after that show, he used her some more. So note by note, note, this is where you need to be, and she'd get there. And uh, she was stubborn to get there, too, especially when you look at what so she was she, going she through. So she didn't read music then? No. So she was just doing us all from memory? Yes. Like yeah, playing you, you hear about that yeah. a lot. I mean, you hear about that like Paul McCartney? Mm-hmm. Oh, not able to read music. I mean, not, or maybe he's, le he's learned it since, but it was not something he admitted McCartney's, that again. In an interview, were they in a musical group recently. or something? I thought his parents were. No, it's by did, right. Okay. By, I mean, you learn how to play the piano and all that, but to be able to do it by ear. And you you wow. hear about that. You hear about that a lot. For instance, a totally different kind of film we were talking about, The Wicker Man. The woman, okay, <laughs> totally Woodward? different, totally different. But the story behind the woman, the young woman, who sang a little bit, didn't wasn't trained, couldn't read music. After the film, she was one of the students in the one classroom scene. She's singing with Edward Woodward, the star, the film, one of the stars, along with Christopher mm -hmm. Lee. Sort of like the after party for the for for the the crew, right? She's up on stage singing with him, and she is approached by either the director or the producer. Say, would you 
would you sing the, the theme song that um, Giovanni has just written, who fabulous composer, for the opening of the film? And she sings this unbelievable Gaelic ballad. It's not even Gaelic. There's no, the roots of it are nowhere in Gaelic music. Right. It just sounds like it. It's one of the events of the whole film. When you start the film, and he's taking off for this island, right? Which is a very fateful trip. And she begins singing, but she didn't have any, any, you can't believe how beautiful the voice is and how beautiful that song is. Uh, and she didn't have any training. I've got to take this caller. We have maybe just enough time to get him on because he's got a pun for us and we're going to have to keep it short. So, so Joe, you got, a, you got something yeah. for us. Nice talking to you, Joe. See yeah, you later. Since you got such a serious show, I thought I'd bring a little humor. Oh, no. Very little humor us, please. in that. The story you told, I think, is the most farthing thing from the truth I've ever heard. But I'm fine. All right, yeah. Goodbye, Joe. <laughs> oh, I love you, brother. God bless. He roped Derek into the rim shot. Yeah, I don't know how he did that. That's cute. So, um, so, any last words about Messiah, the the musical piece? Oh, it's just it for me. It's so beautiful. I mean, it, it's one of those events. If you happen to see it live at mm -hmm. Hill Auditorium or elsewhere, that you never forget. For a young person to hear that with a superb performance can be, I think, life altering. I think so. Or or influencing. I, I agree. Anything? Well, I'm I'm going to make it a point if I can see it at the Hill sometime because it's it's come to my attention lately that live performances just sure beat your stereo and your headphones and yeah. you know yeah I I, and I, I can I, imagine I, this thing just filling the room absolutely and knowing it's live and somebody could screw up any minute. Like watching a, a NASCAR race or something. No, that's not the reason you go to an orchestra. You're not looking for the wreck. You are there to enjoy oh, okay. the beautiful music. Um, it's uh, and the Ann Arbor Orchestra is wonderful. Just just so you know, the Ann Arbor Orchestra is absolutely wonderful. I've seen them on a few different pieces, and um, I, I highly recommend it to anyone. Or even the U of M Orchestra is is pretty awesome too. If you can get to hear them mm -hmm. play it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, some, UM Symphony? Is that yeah, UMS? Yeah, I get yeah. notices from them all the time. Yeah, their symphony is wonderful. Uh, I heard them uh, a year ago, Halloween. They do a, a family thing for Halloween every year. And uh, uh, the president of the university got up and he actually played the cello with them uh, when I saw him a year, over a year ago, um, about a year from Halloween before that. And they were absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Wicker Man of all things. It really took me a back because there was a discussion i was in a couple of days ago and they were talking about somebody was talking about oh this is the season and the wiccans and blah 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 and yeah. the solstice yeah. and all that and mm -hmm. then somebody brought up and they would sacrifice their 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 you know a live sacrifice in a bit of wicker and they never yeah. mentioned the wicker man you know what i mean and, and then yeah. you bring up the wicker <laughs> man I'm like oh no <laughs> i think i'm hearing music in the background am i hearing music no good all right so you're gonna have to fill me in on the wicker man here Oh, it's, it's just a movie where Edward Edward Woodward, who used to play the Equalizer on TV, mm -hmm. and he's a detective or a constable or something like that. He's got to go mm -hmm. out to this island to investigate a murder or something. It's been a while since I saw it. You you probably tell it better than I do, but he gets out there, and he's like, there's a cult out there, and it's not a good thing for him. Now that's music. Yeah. Folks, I love you all. Merry Christmas. Have a happy new year, and we'll see you next week on A Moment of Clarity.
You've been listening to a moment of clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week right here on Wham Radio. Hello, friends.